Welcome again to Longmont Church of the Nazarene online. Um, we're glad that you're all back with us today. Uh, one reminder to the church family. Um, we are right at the end of the time when you should mail in your ballots uh, for annual elections. In fact, I'm, I'm preaching on Wednesday evening, the 29th, and tomorrow, the 30th, is the deadline. So if you've not mailed your ballot in yet and you want your vote counted, uh, you will probably need to drop that by the church tomorrow between the hours of 8.30 and 2 o'clock so that um, your ballot will be counted among the others. I also want to thank those of you um, who send encouraging words. I receive sometimes emails or texts, uh, maybe even comments on Facebook regarding the messages I've been preaching, and I want you to know how encouraging that is. You don't get much feedback from empty pews, so it's it's good to hear from you, and uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series on the ministry and life of the pro- prophet Elijah, and uh, our, our reference today is from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 16, if you want to go ahead and locate that place in your Bibles, um, and we'll be reading that text through in just a moment. Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we begin. Thank you, Father, for our time to be together. Even though we're not together in one place, um, we can be together out there as the body of Christ in our community. We thank you for the truth of your word and how even these incidents in the life of Elijah can speak to us where we are right now today. I want to thank you for what you've been doing through our church body. Um, We've had not a single report of sickness due to coronavirus. We've had a couple of our folks tested. They came up negative. We've had some folks with some physical issues that spent a short time in the hospital and are now home. We thank you, Father, for your healing touch on their bodies. We've also lost one of our dear ladies and... We pray, Father, for the Diamond family um, in this time of loss. Lord, we know that Nancy is with Jesus today. She's rejoicing. But there's still uh, that sense of, you know, we can't reach out and touch them. We can't have conversation with them any longer. Um, there'll, be, there'll be that hole that is left in people's lives. And we pray for your mercy and your grace and your comfort for that family and for the church body um, who will all miss Nancy. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to work in our community, in our people as we reach out into our community. We have a call on our lives, and it's, Father, not just to have Jesus be our Savior, although that's important for every one of us, but not to keep that for ourselves. It's something that we're supposed to share with a lost and broken world. And I pray that we'll be challenged daily to share Jesus in some way, whether it's a smile, a word of encouragement, an act of caring, or when we have the opportunity 
to share our own testimony with someone else. Father, um, continue to encourage our hearts. Continue to bless people. Keep them safe. Keep them healthy. We're looking forward to that time when we can gather in this place once again to enjoy worship, fellowship, just being together as the body of Christ that is the Longmont Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for your goodness to us that is revealed in so many ways, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just stepping back and reviewing a little from um, our last message on Elijah, he's, he's spent some time in isolation on the, uh, at the brook in the Kareth Ravine. He's been fed morning and evening by ravens, and the brook has been his water supply. But because of the drought that God had brought on the land, the brook has now dried up. And just to think for a moment, what's happened in the life of Elijah while he spent time at Kareth? Well, first of all, he learned to be completely dependent upon God. I mean, there was nothing nothing else out there where he was in isolation to depend on. The second thing is Elijah became alert and keenly sensitive to the voice of God. There were no other distractions. Third, he was taught humility by doing things God's way through God's method and God's provision. And then fourth, God was preparing him for what would come next. And we're going to look at one of those next in our passage today, again, from 1 Kings chapter 17, I'll be reading verses 7 through 16. 1 Kings 17, verses 7 through 16. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Once the brook had dried up, God commands Elijah to move. This relocation may have seemed more drastic and certainly more risky than the one that has sent him to the brook at Kareth. 
He was now to travel over 100 miles north and west across the breadth of the nation to Zarephath, a small village seven miles south of Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. The Sidonians were foreigners to the people of Israel. Zarephath would be a strange and hostile setting for Elijah because the people of Sidon from the earliest times had been worshippers of Baal. Sidon, in fact, was the citadel of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians and father of Jezebel, who was so instrumental in the corruption of Ahab and the, and the country of Israel. God had asked Elijah to leave the safe obscurity of Kareth in his own land and locate himself in the heart of enemy territory, practically on the doorstep of Baal Central. He would essentially be within shouting distance of the stronghold of the heathen god that he despised. From all appearance, it would seem that Elijah was going from bad to worse, and in some ways that was the case. Seems like a tremendous amount of pressure to put on a person, doesn't it? But at Zarephath, God had some testing and toughening for Elijah to endure. The pulpit commentary says, the name Zarephath points to furnaces or workshops for the refining of metals. And it seems that refining is exactly what was in store for God's prophet. At Kareth, God had separated Elijah from all possible distractions in order to hew his character, just as the brook had hewn its way through the desert floor to create the ravine that Elijah had spent time in. Now at Zarephath, the process would continue in preparation for the monumental tasks that lay ahead of the prophet. God's assurance to Elijah was that he would be cared for by a widow once he reached his destination. And it was probably a bit disconcerting, for in his culture, the ancient traditions relating to orphans and widows were strictly observed. You simply did not want to impose on a widow and her children. One did not take advantage of these unfortunate members of society. To do so was to incur the wrath of God and the rejection of society. We, we find God's instruction regarding this in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, where it says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Elijah was certainly aware of this passage of Scripture. He also realized the potential burden he would place on the widow and her son, who were already living on meager provisions because of the drought that had decimated the country. Understandably, then, Elijah had to be sure, absolutely sure, that this call to Zarephath was clearly and unmistakably from God and not from his own thinking or his own mind. Now it becomes clear that the days at the brook, listening 
and learning to hear and distinguish God's voice now come into play in a very important way. Now, in his new assignment, Elijah faces two problems, a double danger. Obviously, as been previously mentioned, as a prophet of God living in a land of people that had historically worshipped Baal, there was potential trouble. But second, there was the concern relating to his dependence upon a widow for his provision. This can only be understood in light of the culture of his times. The people of Israel were given specific instructions on exactly how to support widows and orphans in their agrarian society. We, get, we find that instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 21. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that, so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave, that, leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And we see a, an example of this very thing in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is allowed to glean after the harvesters in the grain fields of Boaz. Well, all this is fine. God had made this beautiful and generous arrangement for orphans and widows. Problem was, it had been at the word of Elijah that the skies had turned to endless glare. Cloudless days produced dry desert winds, which held no promise of rain. The ground had become hard under the baking sun, and there were no grapes, olives, crops, or grain for anyone, anywhere, much less for those depending on the provision or leaving of others. It is probable that this, by this time, the prophet was aware and maybe even painfully self-conscious of his role as a key figure in this dreadful calamity of the drought that now plagued Palestine. He was now regarded as the one who troubled Israel. But more than that, the whole region, including Sidon. What right did he have to go and impose on a widow and her son who already had meager resources that had been stretched even thinner by the drought? A tough question and one that Elijah must be confident that he had the answer for. He had to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God was doing, that what he was doing was at God's direction. Fortunately, Elijah had three things from recent experience to draw upon. First, he knew God's voice. In the solitude of the brook, he learned to discern God's voice speaking among the voices of his own mind, to hear clearly over his own doubt and questionings. He could discern God's voice from that of the enemy Satan, who would seek to confuse and distract him from God's will. Second, he knew God's methods were sometimes, and in his case it seems regularly, unconventional. 
God does not answer. God does not provide. God does not act according to human planning, reason, or logic. Elijah had already seen that played out in a dramatic way. You have to wonder what Elijah was thinking God would do after the brook dried up. Like all of us, he probably had his own ideas about what, how God would lead and provide. My guess would be that the last thing he expected was to be provided for by a widow down to her last handful of flour. But he had learned that God works in unexpected ways. And then three, he had learned to obey and see what God would do, even if it didn't make sense. The history, that history of obedience made it possible to trust in God again, even though doing so meant relying on a source that seemed improper in this case. So, in this new circumstance, Elijah could be certain that he was in step with God's will, and without hesitation, he came to Zarephath. Arriving there, he found a poor widow outside the gate of the city gathering sticks so she could build a fire and prepare her last meal. The drought had brought her to the end of her resources. Now comes Elijah, emerging from the desert, unkempt from months of hairy growth, dusty from his journey, asking for a drink of water. To ask a woman, a strange woman, was an act of tremendous humiliation for Elijah. We see this same cultural idea expressed in Jesus' day. Recall the surprise of the disciples when they returned from town to, from buying food to discover Jesus was talking to a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman? It just wasn't done, and the same was true in Elijah's time. A man would not normally ever take food or drink from a strange woman. Add to that, Elijah knew that this same woman would be the one who would provide him shelter. It went completely against the grain, but he was simply doing what God had told him to do. God's bold prophet had to set aside self. Many of the moral and cultural conventions that he had previously lived by must now be set aside. Elijah needed the widow to continue God's refining work in his own life. It was the lowering of himself, the dependence on one so weak, needy, and powerless that was the abrasive God used to smooth the rough edges from this man. And the widow, she needed Elijah. Coming to to her for help would make her feel needed and useful again. Can you put yourself in the place of this poor widow, needed by no one other than her son, dependent on nearly everyone just to exist? Now that would all change as Elijah had come dependent on her for almost everything he needed to exist. What a turning of the tables. What a way for Elijah to learn humility, dependence, and trust.
The woman's response to Elijah's request for a drink was to abandon her search for sticks and go go immediately to fetch water with which to quench his thirst. One moment she is consumed with her own needs. The next she has laid hers aside to meet the need of another. And as she leaves for water, Elijah asks her for bread. Give me something to eat. Well, that's a different story. To draw water from the village well is one thing. To give him of her own meager provisions, well, that's another. After all, she had only enough to provide one last meal for her and her son. They were on the brink of starvation. And Elijah's response, well, we find that in in verses 13 and 14 of our text today, he said, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends Rain on the land. So he urges the woman to go ahead and bake bread, starting with a cake for him. Elijah knew full well that he could not depend on her scant resources to support both him and his and her family. Their supply for the moment and for the duration of the drought would come only from God. Elijah's faith was not grounded in a little flour and oil, but in the faithfulness of God to provide. Many of us have a tendency, I think, to respond as the widow did initially when Elijah asked her for that bread. Circumstances are difficult, the the future looks bleak, and we're concerned about if or how God will provide for us. We contend that our resources have reach the point of exhaustion. We focus on the possibility of failure or deprivation. But the word to us is, don't be afraid. How often we see God communicating that message throughout the scripture in his dealings with mankind, with us. God does not not make a practice of embarrassing those who put their trust in him. He honors those who honor him. He vindicates the trust of those who choose to rely on his capacity to keep his promises. So, Elijah's words to the widow were faith in action. In fact, coming to Zarephath in the first place was faith in action. This was the key to Elijah's success, the secret to the prophet's power. Elijah's faith apparently was contagious. To the credit of the widow, she did just as the prophet asked. We again see this in verses 14 and 15 of our text today. It says, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. 
See, it was the widow's willingness to take what little flour and oil still remained to make a cake of bread for Elijah that saw her supplies stretched to feed her family and the prophet month after month for the duration of the famine. Someone has said, it is not what we possess that matters, but how we hold it in our hands. We're not told exactly how God supplied the widow's needs, but I don't think that he filled the flour and oil jars to the brim. I think it was a daily supply of what was needed so that the jars never ran out. To me, it was an answer to a portion of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples one day. And that portion says this, give us this day our daily bread. Folks, little is much when God is in it. You know, these are unprecedented and for many uncertain and difficult days that we are living in. I remind you that God has promised to meet all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As with Elijah and the widow, he may not meet those needs in the time or way that you will expect, but he will meet those needs. I have a book by Stan Toller on my shelf in my office entitled, God Has Never Failed Me, But He Sure Scared Me to Death a Few Times. Perhaps you can relate to that statement. As I said earlier, God often does not answer, God does not provide, God does not act according to human planning, reason, or logic. But as Stan Toller testified, God has never failed me, and he will not fail you. What's this story about? Well, to give the example of the characters in it, Elijah trusted God and went to Zarephath. Elijah trusted that God would use a widow to supply his needs. The widow trusted that when she made a cake of bread for Elijah, God would continue to provide for her. They trusted. And then they obeyed. Elijah went. The woman made the cake. And the third part of that is God's faithfulness. Then God came through. God did what he needed to do to provide for Elijah and the widow and her family. And the same formula applies for us today. It's our trust. Do we trust God in these days? As bleak as they may look to some of us, with the coronavirus, with the economic impact and all the ripple effects that that has for us. Maybe some of you are feeling the effects of that right now. Do we trust in God? And are we willing to obey him? Whatever he tells us we need to do. Maybe it's wait on him. Maybe it's go find a job, some kind of job that you wouldn't normally do. Maybe it's something that you would never expect God to ask you to do because God does work in unconventional ways. But if we trust and we obey, we can also believe that God will be faithful. God will not fail us.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who provides. And I know so often in our lives it happens in a way that we don't expect. So often there's that kind of thinking that we have that says, well, if I have a financial need, surely there will be a check show up in the mail. We usually have a plan about how you will do what we want you to do, but so often, Father, you provide the need in a way that just comes from a direction we never expected. That's who you are. So help us in what are difficult days for many of us to trust you, to obey you, to keep doing what you've called us to do, to be faithful as followers of Jesus Christ, to seek your face through the word and through prayer, to to reach out and touch the lives of others in any way we can and to, to take whatever steps you guide us to take to maybe help provide for ourselves and then trust you ultimately to meet whatever need that we have in our lives. And Father, I know in times like this, people begin to question. And I think there are a lot of people in times like this who begin to look up. They begin to look up. You know, when they've been so self-consumed and engaged in the busyness of life that they maybe not had even a thought for you, Lord God, in times like this when the pressure's on and the heat's turned up and, and we wonder where the, the provision's going to come from, we, we begin to look up. And Father, my prayer in all of this is that people would begin to seek you, Lord God. We need that. Oh, we need to continually seek you as followers of Jesus Christ. But, Father, folks who maybe haven't given you a thought in a long time or kind of put you on the back shelf or really haven't been interested at all in who you are, I I pray that they will begin to seek you. We know, Father, that the greatest need in our lives is to have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, shed his blood, so that we could have forgiveness of sins and enter into a personal relationship with you. One of the songs I really love and appreciate is a song that says, I am a friend of God. To think, Father, that you would call us friends. But that's possible for all of us through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. So as important as I believe it is for you, God, to provide the needs of people, whatever that may be. I thank you that you've already provided for the deepest need we have spiritually, and that's the need for forgiveness of sins and a relationship with you, our Creator, Heavenly Father. And I pray if there are any listening today who don't know Jesus and recognize that need in their heart, they would seek you. They would recognize that you are God, You sent your son. He shed his blood. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He did that for me. And I appropriate what Jesus Christ did for me to my own life. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I want to make you Lord of my life. Thank you, Father, that you can meet the deepest need of our lives through that simple prayer. And I pray that there are some today 
who will have that need met. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for watching. God bless you this week.